Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the passage on the screen this morning. We're just going to look at a couple of, of verses today as we come to the Lord's table. As we start this morning, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this with me. Uh, I've been kind of wrestling with it all week as I've read uh, these, these uh, two short verses. Here's the question. What is, if you're a disciple of Jesus, what is your biggest challenge in your relationship with God? Uh, if there's something that you kind of trip up on over and over again, what might that be? If you're not a, a believer in Jesus and you're here this morning, I say, well, you know, I'm thinking about it, looking into it, but I'm not sure. But maybe you're convinced that there's a God out there somewhere, a higher power somewhere. Uh, what would you say is the biggest challenge you have uh, in discovering who that God is and what he's like and how he wants to interact with you or, or not interact with you, uh, kind of depending on your, your presuppositions there. So whether you're a Christian or not, what is your biggest challenge in your relationship with God? As I wrestled with that this week, I think some of, some of them tend to be uh, theological in nature. Some people say, well, you know that whole you know, that big word, predestination and free will, and how does that go together? That trips me up a lot. Uh, some folks are maybe uh, a little more... Uh, experiential and look at the world and say, well, how do bad things happen? You know, if God was really a God of love, uh, you know, things like, like little Noah getting sick, those kinds of tragic events, that, that doesn't seem to fit with who God claims to be. And so, you know, maybe, maybe a hang up for somebody might be why those types of things happen. Maybe they're more ethereal. You know, what's the origin of sin and where did all that, that come from? You know, it could be a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but I've been thinking about mine this week. And as I told three of my friends before the first service, I'm going to preach to me today, and if you want to listen in, you're welcome to do so. Uh, but as I think about, probably if I could boil it down to one thing, it would be this. My biggest challenge is believing and living in the truth that I am loved and delighted in by my Heavenly Father. Let me say that again for you. My biggest challenge is believing and not just intellectually believing, but living in the truth that I am loved and delighted in by my Heavenly Father. Now, you may not have ever thought of it that way, but I would guess that there's at least one or two other people that uh, need this sermon as much as I do this morning. I think for a lot of us, our perception of God, even if we're Christians, even if we've walked with the Lord for years even, even if we're pretty mature in our faith, one of the challenges we have is seeing God as one who loves us unconditionally, who doesn't look at our performance, who doesn't look at, at how much money we, we give or don't give, who doesn't look at whether we teach Sunday school or don't teach Sunday school, or whether we donate our time to a local charity or don't donate a time to our local charity, as his starting point for his relationship with us. We are challenged to believe that, a, that the God of the universe, who sent his son Jesus, that his starting point in his relationship was, uh, with us was that he loved us unconditionally before we ever loved him. The Apostle John says this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. I have a hard time getting around my mind around the idea that God loves me, period. <laughs> that God delights in me, period. Doesn't mean he, he doesn't want me to grow in my faith. He does. Doesn't mean he doesn't want me to put my faith in Jesus. He absolutely does. He doesn't mean that he doesn't want me to be a better husband, a better pastor, all those things. That absolutely is part of the equation of growing in our faith and maturing in our faith. But the starting point is where I am this morning. The starting point of just believing that that statement is true. That God loves me and delights in me just because of who he is. 
I think these verses uh, are going to help us with that this morning. And I think it's important because understanding this or not understanding this really impacts every corner and area of our lives. For example, if you believe that God is really kind of looking over your shoulder and out to get you and he's just waiting for you to mess up, then you're probably going to pick up your Bible every morning and read it because that's what somebody told you you were supposed to do to please God. And you're going to spend some time in prayer because you want to make sure that God's happy with you. As opposed to a person who picks up their Bible and reads it because they can't wait to hear what their father has to say to them. Because they understand how much he delights in them. You see, it's the same practice. It's the same behavior. But for radically different motives and with radically different results. How I care for other people. How I love my family. How I spend my money. How I handle criticism when people don't like me or don't like what I do. Dealing with the fear in my life, the anxiety that I have, whether or not I'm going to be a witness for Christ. All of those things are impacted, I believe, at this starting point of trusting and believing that God loves me and delights in me because that's his character. So that's what we want to wrestle with a little bit this morning. That's what I'm wrestling with, and you can, you can listen in if you like. Luke chapter 3, just two verses, verse 21 and 22. Hear the word of God. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this text this morning, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, I'm amazed sometimes at how far I am from the truth and how even after all of these years, sometimes how little I, I get this foundational principle in my relationship with you. Father, my guess is that there are probably at least a few other folks in this room that, that struggle with this as well, and maybe they've never articulated it, maybe, maybe they've never thought about it in these terms, but it resonates with them. And so, Lord, for those of us who are tempted to believe that our relationship with you is founded on whether or not we can impress you and do enough good things to get you to like us or to love us. I pray that you would help us worship you with our minds this morning as we look at this text. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would forgive my sin. I pray that you would keep me from saying anything that's inappropriate or wrong or harmful instead of helpful. Lord, my words are not important. Your word, your eternal word, is of great value and great worth to every person in this room, whether we realize it or not. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds. Lord Jesus, that you would be our teacher. I pray in your name. Amen. I want to cover just a couple of other details before I get to what I really want to say this morning, uh, because I think there's some really good truth in these couple of verses that, I, that I'm going to just touch on, and, and we could spend a whole lot more time. I could actually, I have four sermons in these two verses. I'm only going to, to preach 1.3 of them uh, this morning, but I do want to cover a couple of other basics. The first one I want to cover is this. People ask this question, why was Jesus baptized? It says that John came preaching a baptism for the repentance of sins. And Jesus, being the Son of God and being, being perfect and being holy, certainly did not need to confess any sins because he had never committed any sins. And so why is it that when John is going around preaching uh, and baptizing that Jesus shows up to be baptized? In one of the other Gospels, it records uh, John saying to Jesus, you know, I need to be the one that's baptized by you. 
And Jesus says, well, it should be this way for now. Why is it that Jesus uh, experienced and put himself uh, in a position to be baptized? And I think there are two basic reasons. And again, you could do a whole sermon on this, but I'll just skim over them quickly. Number one is I believe that Jesus needed to identify with the sinners around him. Not that he identified himself as a sinner, but that he identified with them in their weakness and in their struggle. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that he was made like his brothers in every aspect so that he could minister to them. And I think that as Jesus saw people coming to the Jordan River and saw them coming looking for repentance and looking for answers in their lives, that he thought that was, that was a good step in the right direction and he wanted to endorse that and he wanted to be around sinners and he wanted to show that what John was preaching and what John was doing was exactly what God had called him to and what was needed at that moment for the spiritual life of those folks. But I think it's more than that. I don't think it's just identifying with sinners. I think Jesus was also establishing his objective. He was letting the world know what he was coming to do. After all, Jesus didn't come just to be a great teacher. Jesus didn't come just to perform uh, miracles in which he healed people or or fed the 5,000 or raised the dead. That wasn't Jesus' primary task. His primary responsibility was to rid the world of the destruction and the death that was caused by sin. He came to offer salvation. That's why John the Baptist says in chapter 1 of John's gospel, look, as he sees Jesus, there's the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. And I think through his baptism, Jesus was identifying and establishing that as his objective. But what about the baptism itself? What do we see here? Well, again, a couple things before we get Uh, to the heart of the matter. The first one is this. Look at verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying. I think I've skipped over that that phrase, those three words, and was praying. I I don't even think I realized it was in the text until I really sat down to study it. I I think it's kind of one of those verses where you're thinking about baptism, and you kind of skip past that part. But what I want you to see is that Jesus was in constant communication with his Father. Jesus was in the process of being baptized. There are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of people milling about the Jordan River, being involved in John's ministry, and Jesus is being baptized, and he's talking to his dad. If you're a parent, you know how fun it is. If your kids have gone off, they've grown up, or they moved out of the house, or maybe they're off at college, when you look at that cell, uh, when it rings, and you see their name on it. Isn't that fun? You know, And when they call, them, they, they actually want to talk to you and chat with you a little bit. How much fun it is to talk to your children, you kids that are going off to college, just, you know, once a week, all right, just put it in, put it in, just make it a schedule, call mom, call dad, just say hello. It'll make, a little investment of yours will go a long, long way. We love hearing from our kids. I I loved Katie calling to me this week, even though she wanted money. It was, it was still (laughs) just great to hear from her and hear her voice and to talk to her about what was going on with her. Jesus is in constant communication with his father, father. If you go through the book of Luke, it's amazing how many times Jesus is found praying. Let me just kind of hash, hash over him real quick. After hours of healing, Jesus goes off to a desolate place where he prays all night. Before calling the 12 to be his disciples. Before and after feeding the 5,000. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is praying. When Jesus sends out the 72 to go out and preach and to minister, and then when he brings them back, when they come back and they report, he's praying. 
before teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer, at the tomb of Lazarus, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to participate in this morning, in Gethsemane before he goes to the cross, on the cross, after the resurrection, all throughout Jesus' life, he was in constant communication, speaking to and listening to his Father. Does that describe my prayer life? Does it describe yours? Uh, the last couple months, the elders have been, uh, the first year, we've been talking about Green Tree and how we're doing, and we've been looking at the ministries of Green Tree and the finances of Green Tree and, uh, and our future and what we believe our strengths are and maybe what some of our weaknesses are. And, and, uh, and a few weeks ago, the elders said, you know what, we, we kind of just need to back up a little bit, stop, and spend some time in prayer and fasting. And so without announcing it to the congregation or anybody else, for the last several Mondays, the elders have been praying and fasting every day for, for the pastors, for uh, the other leaders and for Green Tree as a whole. Next Sunday, we're going to invite the entire congregation to join us for a three-week time of praying and fasting leading up to Easter Sunday. Don't panic. We're not going to ask you to fast for three solid weeks, but we are going to invite you to, to fast one day a week for three weeks, okay? So just rest on that. And don't, don't panic. But the point is, is that the elders feel like, you know, we need to just kind of take some time and communicate with our Father. We need to just talk and listen to what he's saying to us corporately as a congregation. And I believe that's in keeping with Jesus' lifestyle. But I'm still wondering, okay, what is it about this relationship that causes Jesus to be in constant communication with his Father? And I'll leave that question hanging and come back to it in a few minutes. The other thing we see in this passage, before we get to my main point, is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22. Jesus is praying, and the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, in bodily form like a dove. Now, again, I, I could preach an entire sermon on this, but suffice it to say this morning that in coming to earth and taking on human form, Jesus is voluntarily limiting his divine power and status. Read Philippians chapter 2 for a thorough explanation of this. Jesus leaves heaven, he comes to earth, he takes on the form of a human and the form of a servant. Jesus limits himself purposely in order that he might become the sacrifice for sins that you and I need. But the Father does not leave him alone in that process. The Father gives him the Holy Spirit in order that he may be able to face the challenges of his earthly ministry. Now again, as we go through Luke's gospel over, over the next few months, we're going to see time after time after time the challenges that Jesus faces in his earthly ministry. The very next story in the life of Jesus after this one is the temptation of Jesus, facing Satan head-on, one-on-one after 40 days with no food. That would not be an easy task. The immediate story after that is Jesus going to his hometown and introducing his public ministry and preaching his very first sermon. And you know what the crowd did after he preached his first sermon? They tried to throw him off a cliff. And you know what? It only got worse from there. The challenges that Jesus faced in his earthly ministry were enormous challenges, the unbelief of his listeners, the opposition of the religious leaders who should have known enough to embrace him, the spiritual warfare with Satan and with his demons, the abandonment and betrayal of friends, the rejection of his own people. I could go on and on with this list, but you get my point. Jesus was facing an enormous uphill battle. I'm thankful that the first time I preached at Green Tree, that actually was a Sunday where I preached that I was candidating to be the pastor, and they didn't come to my house and try to burn it down. But Jesus faced that kind of stiff challenge day in and day out, and he needed the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So at his baptism, the Father formalized the power behind Jesus' public ministry. 
But what I really want to come to this morning is found in verse 22, because it's not just the prayer life of Jesus or the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, but it's the unending affirmation of the Father. Look at verse 22. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Two statements in this verse. The first one, you're my beloved son. In other words, the father is saying in front of all the, all the world. He's saying it this morning in front of us as we read this text. Jesus is my son, and Jesus, I love you. Think about that as a parent or as a, as a spouse or, or somebody you're dating. You know, when, you, when you've been dating a little while and you finally kind of venture out and to offer those words, I love you, you really hope the, the person responds with, and I love you too. But the father is saying in front of all who will listen, this is my son and I love him. But more than that, he says, with you, I am well pleased. Or another way to say that is, with you, I find great delight. I simply delight in you because you're my son. Yesterday afternoon, I, I went over to Nathan's apartment. Our oldest has moved out and got an apartment. And I'm going to quickly list everything that's in his apartment. Okay, it will, trust me, this isn't going to take long. He has a bed in the bedroom. He has a couch in the living room. And he has a, a, a little dresser table thing that sits across from the couch and a flat screen TV. I've just told you everything that's in my son's apartment. He has a refrigerator, but there's nothing in the refrigerator, so I didn't feel the need to mention that. We spent the afternoon watching, watching the golf match. Uh, I got done with my sermon, and Jordan and I, our youngest, went over, and I sat with my boys and watched golf for two hours. Now, flat screen TV is pretty cool. I have to admit, that, that was nice, okay? But it wasn't why I was there. I was there because I wanted to hang out with my boys. Why? Because they'd done something special for me? No, because I delight in them. Why do I delight in them? They're just kind of average guys. I delight in them because they belong to me. They're mine. They don't have to do anything to earn that. They don't have to, think to do anything to try and deserve that. It's theirs because I, they belong to me. And the Father is saying, I delight in Jesus. And when does he make this statement? He doesn't make this statement when Jesus hanging, is hanging on the cross, gasping for his last breath, having made himself the sacrifice for all the sins of the world. He doesn't say this after Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He doesn't say, wow, that's really impressive. Hey, did everybody see my boy there? See what he did? You try to feed 5,000 people with two loaves and three fishes. He doesn't say it after Jesus walks on water. He goes, boy, how, son, how did you do that? That's amazing. Hey, everybody, look at my son. He doesn't say that after Jesus casts out demons. He doesn't say after he preaches a sermon on the mount. Boy, my boy can talk, can't he? No. Before Jesus has done anything in his public ministry, the Father says, I delight in you. I love you, which I believe speaks not to the energy and the effort and the work of our Savior. But this Father's pleasure is all about the Father's character. The Father's character is a character of love. The Father's character is a character of delighting in his children. We've all probably had the experience of being around the hockey rink in my world or maybe the, the basketball court in your world or the baseball field or the soccer field or wherever, and we've seen a mom or a dad, typically it's a dad, to be honest with you. I don't know that I've ever... Yeah, I've seen a mom do this once or twice in 20 years. Um, but typically it's the dad after the game's over and the, and, and, and the son's messed up on the field, you know, and the dad's there, oh, you should have tried harder, you should have done this, you should have done that. You know what? That's not about the child's performance, quite frankly, dads. That's all about your hang-up and my hang-up when we do something like that. That's about the sickness in our heart. It's not about our children. And here's the father. 
saying, yeah, Jesus, had, Jesus has been an obscure carpenter in Nazareth. That's his resume to this point. And the father says, before we get going, son, I want to tell you something. I love you, and I delight in you. I believe that was the foundation, that unmitigated love and pleasure that the father bestowed upon the son, I believe gave Jesus the strength and the motivation to say, you know what, they can stick thorns in my head, I don't care. They can nail me to a cross, they can spit on me, they can beat me, and I don't care because my father loves me. And this is my father's will. And I'm not going to turn one iota away from his will because he delights in me and he loves me. And because of that, I will follow him even if it kills me. Friends, that's the foundation of your faith in my faith. It's not your ability to hang on to God. We, we say at times we want you to accept Jesus, and, and, and I understand what's behind that. And, and in a sense, that's true. You need to make a decision to put your faith in Christ. But before you lift one intellectual or emotional or spiritual finger to trust God, God has already placed his love upon you. Not because of what you've done, but because of his character. And when we begin to get our minds around this, when it begins to sink into our bones, when it begins to become part of our fabric, I believe it changes everything. A person with this kind of security of unconditional love and, and delight and pleasure will go through the fire for their parent. Why? Because they know that the relationship is sound. But here's the dangerous part in the church, friends. And here's where it gets a little bit dicey. Because the person who's lacking in that security, the person who, is, who, who, who doesn't know that they have that already, they will go through the fire as well. But for a very different reason, because they're trying to earn that affirmation. And the problem is you can live in the second area while you look like you live in the first. I know because I've lived there for part of my life. I know what it's like to say, you know what, I just got to try a little bit harder. And friends, I've been a Christian since I was five years old. And for all of my life, the people who have influenced my life, from my mother on down to every teacher I ever had in seminary or in Christian college that I attended, every Sunday school class, people have told me, your heavenly father loves you unconditionally. But for some reason, it's one of those things that doesn't, it's just a little bit elusive for me. And so there have been times where I live my life going, man, I got to be careful. I got to make sure that God's happy with me. So I have to do this or I have to do that. And you know what? It looks just exactly the same as the person who lives with love as their foundation. But there's a huge difference. One of them springs from love. The other life strives for affirmation. One of them has love as its objective, while the other has love as its starting point. Where are you this morning? Do you understand, or have you begun to understand, might be a better way to say it, that God's love for you is delighting you is not because of what you do, but because of who he is, because of his character, that his pleasure rests upon you because you belong to him, because through Christ, that love and delight that the father gave to the son at his baptism belongs to you and to me as well, because we've been adopted into the family through Jesus. We've been brought into the family. We are now as disciples of Jesus. We are sons and daughters of the living God. So the Apostle John, in uh, 1 John, 
chapter uh, 3, when he's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, he's scratching, I really think he's scratching his head, and he, and he almost can't believe it, and he goes, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And that is what we are. That needs to be the foundational principle in my life. Through Christ, I need to understand that God's love and delight rests upon me simply because I belong to him. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, Nate and I were having a conversation about a decision he had made. And, uh, and we were, actually, we were driving to Cardinals uh, game. It was actually, we were driving down to watch Cardinals play the Mets in the playoffs uh, three years ago, I think. And we're in the car, and he's telling me this decision that he's made. And he looks at me and goes, are you disappointed in me? And I said, are you kidding me? I said, I might, not, I might not agree with every decision you make all your life. I, I, I may think you ought to do A instead of B, but disappointed? I don't even know what that looks like. You're mine. There can never be any disappointment in our relationship. All there is is love and delight. Not because you get it all right. You, you mess it up plenty, but because you belong to me. Friends, on an infinitely greater scale, than my, than my sorry affirmation for, for my son and, and my humanity. God, I can't even begin to tell you how much greater God's love and delight is in you. Not because you've done anything, but because you're his. Let's try to believe that this week. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the experience that Jesus had at the Jordan because I, I do see in that affirmation the foundation for him to be secure in his relationship with you and because of that to love sinners like us well. He could put up with the rejection. He could put up with the anger. He could put up with his disciples not getting it. He could put up even sweating great drops of blood and going to the cross because he knew that he owned your delight and nothing would ever separate him from that. Father, I confess that I don't always get that and that oftentimes I don't live in that. And my guess is there may be some other friends here this morning who, who also struggle. So, Lord, I pray for those of us this morning who forget about your love and your delight, that we would be reminded this morning and that we would be reminded day by day. And as we leave this place and as we go back into our workplace and our homes and community, schools, that our starting point would be this great love and delight that are ours because you have adopted us through Jesus and we now belong to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.